Turning back in the Word of the Lord today to the book of 2 Samuel, the 14th chapter that already we have been reading from, 2 Samuel chapter 14. While I was going through the message, sort of got the impression, here's a harvest service a week late. It deals with that kind of territory, or it's a subject that, yes, you could conceivably preach at a harvest, I'm sure, so maybe sometime in the future. But Second Samuel 14, verse 30 and verse 31. Therefore, we're talking about Absalom here, he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house, and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire. And our topic this morning, when your barley fields burn. When your barley fields burn. And let's, with the Word of God open before us, bow together in a further word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, again today we seek thy face. And we pray that as we come to an open book, that would open our minds and our hearts to the Word of God. There won't be much of an impact. There won't be much of a blessing. There won't be much of a result if by Thy mighty Spirit our minds and hearts are not open today. Take every distracting thought away. Because we often come and we have one thousand and one things going on in our heads. And we have this to attend to, we have that to plan, we have other subjects to become immersed in. But Lord, we ask that all of that will be taken away from us in the remainder of this meeting, that I will focus our heart and our mind upon the truth of God the word that thou wast given, and may it be of real benefit unto us individually and collectively today. We pray for Betty here, that thy hand of grace will be upon her in the loss in the family, that of her brother. We ask that thou wilt sustain her spirit, and that thou wilt comfort her heart, and be with the family that has been bereaved, that they may know thy presence. And in a time when serious thoughts are brought to bear upon us, that that most serious thought of all, that how do we stand before God, will be brought across the minds of family and friends. Lord, we all need that. We all need to be solemnized. We all need to ask ourselves the question, where do I stand with God today? Am I doing my best? Have I passed the test? Is He satisfied with me? May we not shy away 
from asking and answering serious questions. We pray in Jesus' name for God's eternal glory for our undoubted good. Amen. There are some events in life that are really attention-grabbing. And no matter what we do, no matter where we have been focused, our focus is just suddenly altered, and we need to think upon the subject on hand. No doubt our world set up on the 7th of October 2023 for all the wrong reasons when Hamas, that terrorist outfit from Gaza, unleashed such repulsive violence on innocent Israelis claiming the lives of at least 1,400 and taking many hostage over into the territory of Gaza. But whatever we say about that, and we said a lot about it on Wednesday night past, here is the baseline thought. It was certainly attention-grabbing. And what we have in 2 Samuel 14, the passage to which we have turned today, certainly also grabs our attention. Verse 28 to 34, we'll look at just at this moment in time. So Absalom, verse 28, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to have him sent to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore, Absalom said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? Absalom had determined, This man is not listening to me. I have made an approach. I have doubled down on the approach. He is ignoring me completely. He wants nothing to do with me. There's got to be a way that he will take me under his notice. And here is what he decided to do. In the time of impending harvest, burn up his fields. You remember that Absalom killed his brother Amnon. That was in revenge for the incestuous rape in which Amnon had engaged with his sister Tamar. Having killed Amnon, Absalom fled out of Jerusalem for fear of his life. He stayed away for three years until David, his father, the king, was persuaded to allow him to return. However, even after Absalom did return, he wasn't allowed to come near the palace or to see the face of his father, the king. That exclusion, already three years, was now extended by a further two years. And so it's five years now since David had spoken of Absalom or vice versa. And so Absalom decided it's time to act. The situation is not going to persist. And he knew Joab as David's right-hand man. And he sent for Joab, and he called for him to get up an audience with the king. And Joab ignored him completely. He sent again to him, and again the response was exactly the same. And Joab was saying, I want nothing to do with Absalom here. I am not going to stand as a kind of a mediator between him and his father David. But conniving wretch that he was, Absalom finally hatched a plan that was going to guarantee, I will get 
under Joab's skin. I'll attract his attention. He'll not be able to ignore me any further. And so he told the servants, Joab's fields over there, ignite them. Incinerate his barley. And they did. Mission accomplished. Success of sorts. Joab appears like lightning around to the house of Absalom, and he demands, why did you do that? Wherefore have thy servants set my fields on fire? Absalom's attention-grabbing exercise had worked. But the application I'm going to make today is this. What does it take? for God to get people's attention. What does it take for God to get people's attention, wicked as Absalom's deed was? There is a sense in which it could be viewed as a picture of God's gracious, and I emphasize the word gracious, actions towards sinners. Knowing our obstinance, knowing our stubbornness, knowing the fact that when a messenger comes from God, we turn him aside, we ignore him. Another one comes, we do the same. God, from His great throne, speaks in mercy. And He often does things in order to make us willing to come and willing to seek mercy. And many times His practice will be He will come in and set our barley fields on fire. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a moment that judgment will bring men to repentance. It's the goodness of God, the Bible says, that leads fallen men and women to repentance, Romans 2 and the verse 4. However, while judgment does not in itself produce repentance, God often sends and channels His grace to us by means of providential judgments. That's the message that we find in Psalm 107, and you can check that out for yourself when you've time. But preachers, they proclaim, and they pray. And as they articulate the gospel to their hearers, they're pleading with God for you. They're pleading with you in Christ's dead, as Paul talked about the ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5. They're trying to persuade you to come to Jesus Christ, and often they wonder, what will it take? for God to get your attention. The burden of your immortal soul lies heavy upon their heart. Each person unconverted, regularly attending a gospel ministry, is of great and constant concern. And so if you're lost, without Christ, unconverted, under the wrath of God, we pray that you'll not die in your present condition that your days won't come to an end, and there you are, right in and over the precipice into a lost eternity. And I am sure 
for people in this house unconverted, God has spoken already to you. Maybe many, many times. Maybe on occasions you've been moved by the preaching of the gospel. You've felt the draw of the Spirit of God upon your heart, and you've certainly had enough providential warnings to think to yourself and to tremble within yourself, but many times you push it back. You harden your heart. You insulate yourself against the Word. But of course, if God has chosen you, then He is going to get you for sure. He will catch up with you. He will bring circumstances around you, orchestrate events. I know that. And yet I cannot help but wonder what exactly will it take for God to get your attention. And maybe you as a child of God today have a family member, and you have expended hours in prayer on them. And you've personally pleaded with them, and you've witnessed to them. And you're thinking, what really will it take for God to give them that jolt they need? Grab their attention. And maybe as children of God, and let's make the application to ourselves today, we're entangled too much with the cares and the affairs of the world. And weeds are growing up and choking the effect of the Word of God upon our heart and upon our conscience. And then it becomes easy to wander away from the house of God and drop down in our attendance to the means of grace and, oh, I don't need to go on the Lord's Day evening. Why should I be there? Or the prayer meeting? I'll abandon that as well, and that won't be part of my week anymore. And we start drifting, 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 almost imperceptibly at the beginning until it becomes a crisis. And sometimes by the time it is a crisis, even then, we are so dulled in our conscience We don't appreciate how far we've gone, how much we've wandered, what we're losing out. And at the moment, I have no doubt that you can argue that your neglect of the things of God and the means of grace, well, that's unavoidable. Look at my circumstances. You must understand where I am. I know if you're the Lord's, He'll not lose you. But He might set your barley fields on fire. And if he has to, he might just work in the middle of your business or in your health or among your family or anything else that he considers a small thing for the relationship of your soul with him to be restored for your soul. He sacrificed his own well-beloved son, and those barley fields of yours are nothing in comparison with that. And so to the child of God, let's apply it to our heart and conscience also. What will it take? for God to get our attention. Is it getting through? And I pray He will speak through His Word and do that work of grace in our hearts. And here's where we're going to begin today with the help of God's Holy Spirit. We're looking for the barley fields of the believer. The barley fields of the believer. What I'm going to say may not be terribly encouraging, might be pretty painful, but it will help us of that, I am absolutely sure. 
First thing we're thinking about there under the believer's barley fields is the arena of affliction. It's a fact that as long as we live as children of God in this world around us, we will suffer trial, there will be tribulations, there will be afflictions. Of that there is no doubt. Wheat must be threshed. Gold must be tried. Silver must be purged and purified and make no doubt about it, on our way home from earth to glory, the children of God, we will be corrected, we will be chastened, and we will be improved as we go through. In society today, we all know there's a big backlash against smacking a child. I'm not an advocate of inflicting injury on a child, of course not, but I must uphold the plain teaching of God's Word on this one, for He knows infinitely better than that mass of do-gooders out there who in sweeping away further restraints and discipline from our families and our homes, they have only succeeded in doing what? Building up a legacy of mounting anarchy and lawlessness and then wondering as the fiddle while Rome burns, what went wrong in society? Why is there a breakdown in discipline? Why are things falling apart? Why do people feel under threat by marauding bands? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Some people imagine you read that in the Bible. Well, you don't exactly. It's not a direct quotation from Holy Scripture, but the principle behind it is most definitely emphasized in the Bible repeatedly. For example, in Proverbs 22 and verse 15, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. I wonder what the woke generation thinks of that Bible verse. It doesn't matter. Whatever they say is of no value. What God says is what does count. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. God knows what he's doing with the people he has created. There's no such thing as a child who does not sometimes need the application of a loving father's chastisement. And over in Hebrews 12, the verse 5 to 11, on the spiritual level, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Miss Steele wrote the words, And can my heart aspire so high to say, My Father God, Lord at thy feet, I fain would lie and learn to kiss the rod. 
I would submit to all thy will, for thou art good and wise. Let every anxious thought be still, not one faint murmur rise. Do you know that our Lord Jesus left us a double legacy? And he pinpoints what it is in John 16 to verse 33 when he says, In the world, what are we going to have? Ye shall have tribulation. But then he goes on to say, In me, ye shall have peace. Double legacy. Peace in the middle of tribulation. And is that not how this life unfolds? We must, as long as we're in the body of flesh that we're in, we must suffer many things, and that'll happen under the hand of God's providential care. But we will have many things revealed through the things that we suffer that will improve us, will minister peace unto breaking hearts. Let me emphasize this. When we're chastened of the Lord, We're not suffering in a penal or punitive manner. Our sins were punished in our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the burden of our iniquity. And when God comes in chastisement, He chastises us as a loving Father. He's not coming punishing the redeemed in the way that He would judge and punish a criminal. That was taken care of. At Calvary, my guilt and despair, Jesus took on him there, and Calvary covers it all. And so if Jesus Christ has died for me, the wrath of God has been avenged for me, answered for me. There is no wrath of God directed against me. And when I have affliction, and when I have sorrow, and when I have trouble, it's an expression not so much of God's anger but because He loves me. He's as good to me in those afflicting providences as He is in those bountiful mercies. He is unchanging in His love towards me. The Lord didn't afflict Job, for example, to punish him and to break him, but to benefit him and to bless him immeasurably. And that's how it is with every heaven-born child of his. And through Job's afflictions, the Lord made him an example and an inspiration to others. Our trials, our tribulations, our troubles, they are appointed and arranged by the wisdom and the love and the grace of God, our Heavenly Father. The poet said, God in Israel sows the seeds of affliction, pain, and toil. These spring up and choke the weeds, which would else o'erspread the soil. If God determines that a level of affliction will rise to level 10, the devil and none of his minions can take it a level higher. They'll not get along to 11. If God has determined, it will go to 10. We have Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, Oh, heat the furnace. When he gets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there, seven times beyond the usual temperature, but our Heavenly Father is still controlling the thermostat and helping, defending, delivering His people even in that hottest fire. 
And that's what I read and am taught in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation or trial taken you, but such as is common to man. It happens across the board. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will also with the temptation make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. He has arranged our trials. In addition to these facts, there's an assurance, a blessed comfort, that whatever our Heavenly Father does or allows, it will be for our glory, our good, and it will be for His glory, knowing that we'll be enriched by the trial. Makes it bearable. I know that's a hard concept to grasp. But we have proved it, have we not, many times in our lives already. The man who owns a gold mine doesn't mind going down into the deep, dark pit, way underground, because he knows, I'm going to fetch gold here, ultimately. Why should we fear the dark troubles? When God has promised out of them, He'll make them into a source of spiritual and eternal benefits to our souls. In Romans 8, the verse 18 to 23, some have looked at that chapter. I have a book in the library by J.R. Macduff, Scottish preacher, very eloquent in his words. But he termed Romans 8, as St. Paul's Song of Songs, direct comparison with what we have in the Song of Solomon, he said. And here our Lord is promising that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And not only they, but we ourselves also, which of the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. And so Paul is saying here, you're going through grief and trial and tribulation and trouble, and it's really pressing in upon you a better day is coming. And the assurance is, this is working for our good, though we can't see it, and it is generating glory to God. Romans 8 and 28. Paul is building up through that chapter, and he gets to this crescendo at this point, and he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who were the called according to His purpose. Well, Paul, did you write about this anywhere else? And he would direct us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, and say, look at that, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are eternal, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And if we think, it's only Paul that went down this line and reckoned there was good to be gleaned in trial for us and glory to be had 
had by God in the trial. If only he was the one going down this line. No, he wasn't. Peter did as well. First Peter 1, the verse 3 through to 9, exactly the same thing. That fiery trial through which we are adding grace upon grace upon grace. You'd never hear a nightingale sing if the darkness didn't fall. And there are some notes of praise that never can be reached until we have walked in those dark places. Samuel Rutherford, they took him away from his beloved center of ministry at Anworth. He was writing to those in Karlsluth Castle, not far up the road. He was giving great encouragements to them, and then he just whisked him away and put him up Aberdeen, off the coast of Aberdeen, onto the Bass Rock, imprisoned him there. And Rutherford said, when I find myself in the cellar of affliction, I look around for the wine. And that's not the power of positive thinking. That is the trust of a man who has been there before, seen it before, been led by the hand of God before to understand that even in the darkness, God can shine His light, and He will provide for my need because He's looking after me even here. Charles Spurgeon made a couple of very choice comments on this topic. He said, for example, if you would find a man whose lips drop with pearls, look for one who has been in the deep waters, because that's where he'll pick those up. He also said, we seldom learn much except as it is beaten into us by the rod in Christ's schoolhouse under Madame Trouble. Very expressive comments, but I think you see where Spurgeon was coming from here. But another thought, and it's around the accompaniment. The Lord graciously assures us of His presence, His faithfulness, His love, even in the day of affliction. We're not abandoned. We're not left to ourselves. Sometimes we feel it, but in reality we're not. And I think of the powerful lines that we have in Isaiah 54, the verse 7 to 10, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. And then he goes on to say, The mountains shall depart, the hills will be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy in thee. And there's again what Jesus was teaching. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but in me my peace will never be removed from you all the way through. What about a passage we read many times in hospital visitation? Many persons' favorite verse, Isaiah 41 and 10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And again, going through the waters, Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 5. God is accompanying us 
in the middle of life's greatest desolations. The thought of allurement is here also. He speaks to us. He calls us by name. Though Job didn't suffer on account of a sin, by the things that he did suffer, the Lord called Job closer to himself. And when God sends that icy blast, your direction and mine, we should quickly turn to him like Samuel did. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. What are you wanting to tell me? Why are my barley fields burning? But sadly, is it not the case we don't pay any more attention to God than Joab did to Absalom? And he calls again, and he knocks our door again, and we act as if he's not operating at all. He's not knocking any door. We're totally deaf to his voice. And if that is the case, then he will go to the stage of igniting our barley fields. When David had sinned in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, he wouldn't turn again unto the Lord until the Lord had set his barley field on fire. With Peter denying his Lord. And he again didn't turn to the Lord until his barley fields were burned up. The Lord calls on us. Are we listening? Are we paying any more attention to him? than what we find in our Bible passage here today. He calls on us simply to believe in Him, to trust Him, to rely on Him. But we take all our burdens with ourselves, and we carry them and lug them around, and then we find a barley field or two is burned up. He knocks at the door of his church as he did in the book of Revelation and he calls us to sweeter, more intimate communion with him. But we refuse to rise and open the door. And again, we're thinking of Song of Solomon here as well as Revelation, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, the verse 2 through to 8. He's knocking on the door, but we are otherwise engaged. We have more exciting things to be getting on with. We don't want that closer communion. And then we find, looking out the window, the barley field is on fire. He is determined to get our attention. He calls us to fervent prayer. In Hebrews 4 and 16, let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My people need to pray. But when we don't, He'll burn our barley fields, and that will put us on our knees, and we'll be praying then. He calls us to total consecration to Himself. In Romans 12, the verse 1 and 2, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we are not our own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But when we refuse His cause... Don't be surprised when the barley fields ignite. And the question is, what will it take for God to get our attention? We are His. He will not let us go. The price He paid is too dear a price not to come and help us. Bring us back on track. 
And which of our barley fields does the Lord have to destroy to keep us from destroying ourselves? But we're going to take our application here and move it right across from the barley fields of the believer to the barley fields of those who are the unbelievers, people who are lost, without Christ, and therefore under the wrath of God. Those words of Frank Davis often haunt me as I look at the sinner out of Christ without a Savior. Oh, can it, can it be? Like a ship without a rudder on a wild and stormy sea, out of Christ without a Savior, lonely and dark the way, with no light, no hope in Jesus, making bright the cheerless day, out of Christ without a Savior, no help nor refuge nigh. How can you, my friend and brother, dare to live and dare to die? How can you go through life towards eternity outside of Jesus Christ? I tremble for your souls. And unless I'm badly mistaken, God has spoken to some of you in such a way even in a variety of ways, you know He's spoken to you. But you've stiffened your neck, and you've hardened your heart, and you've said, not for me. The Lord has many ways by which He can pursue us. Pricks in our own conscience, daily events, the workings of His providence, preaching of the gospel, primary method, the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts. The Lord talked about him and he said, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And still as we preach on, we can't help but wondering, what is it going to take for God to get your attention? Some of us sitting here will know in our lives it took something pretty dramatic for God to break in on our hearts. I wonder what it will take for you. This much I know, and this is what gives me cheer. If God has chosen you, and if Christ has shed His blood to redeem you, and if God the Holy Spirit has been sent out on a mission to get you, he will get you. Don't know what barley fields will be burned along the way before He brings down your heart and graciously forces you to come call upon His name. And as I leave the subject today, the barley fields of the believer and of the unbeliever, I need again to get you to Christ. And so we close on the barley fields with the Savior. Last Lord's Day evening, we told the story again of Ruth and Boaz. And how there this girl, with all of her hopes and dreams, dashed in the land of Moab, where she was a native and came from that place. She comes to Bethlehem, the house of bread, 
She works in the barley fields of Boaz. And she finds one who becomes her redeemer, Boaz himself. Now the old barley fields have been burned in Moab. And she's in the house of bread and provision and pardon and blessing. And I'm praying the Lord will reach you as Redeemer and meet your every spiritual need there. I think of Christ in our barley field. We've already mentioned in passing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Read the story in Daniel 3. And how, with the intensity of the heat all around them, the very people who put them into the furnace becoming casualties of the intensity of the flame. Yet even the king peers in. Were there not three men put into the fire? But I see a fourth, and he is the form like unto the Son of God. And he's protecting and absorbing the flames for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and looking after his children. Even as the barley fields burn. That's the kind of Savior we have, the kind of Christ we follow. Who even when the barley fields are burning, He's with us in the fire, protecting providing, and abundantly blessing.